Do you invest your money strictly in stocks and bonds? If so, it's time to change that. Welcome to Approach Investing Differently with me, Stephen Rosen from Hightower Bethesda. I've been advising clients for over 20 years on how to invest in alternative investments, and I'll explain why you should dedicate a percentage of your investable assets to hedge funds, private equity, and real estate in order to maximize returns and create a more efficient investment portfolio. Now, on to the show. Hedge funds and real estate can make a good pair, but what segments of the real estate market you invest in can vary. Your host, Stephen Rosen, explains the differences and why he prefers the strategy he uses in the portfolios he manages. I'm Patrice Sikora. So, Stephen, first, what are the advantages of a real estate investment? So, thanks, Patrice, and good to have you aboard again. Um, I think the benefits of real estate in general are portfolio diversification, lower volatility. And that kind of, as you, you had mentioned, kind of matches what we are, our general objectives are with our hedge funds. Um, there's a lot of different strategies within the real estate world. Um, so whether or not we're looking for growth, whether or not we're looking for income or a combination of the above uh, of the two, um, I think is a very interesting and unique investment opportunity also how you access them. Because there's a lot of different ways that investors can access them. And to your point, we think that how we do it is a little bit better than the rest. It's a little bit on the unique side, like everything that we do in the alternative space. And I think that real estate is an extremely important component when building a overall portfolio and of course, an alternatives portfolio for clients. We'll get to the, the growth versus income a little bit later, but let's talk about how you do invest. You can go private or you can go with the REITs. So tell me about, tell me the one you prefer. Let's talk great, about that first. Great, great question. And there's really only one answer to that one. And for us, it's the private side. Um, I'll give everybody a little bit of a history lesson um, as it relates to public versus private real estate and why we prefer the private side. Um, eons ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, uh, probably going back into the early 90s, uh, publicly traded REITs were known as the great diversifier in the world of allocation. Um, there was not a tremendous amount of correlation uh, between these publicly traded REITs and generally uh, publicly traded equities. And many times as equities may go down, the publicly traded REIT stocks would trade higher. Well, as more and more people caught wind of that, publicly traded REITs became more prevalent within the general asset allocated portfolio, and more and more people began to own them. And as more and more people began to own them and they began to be incorporated into the general allocation of a portfolio, they started to exhibit way more equity-like tendencies, and therefore, the correlation ended up creeping higher and higher and higher. And essentially, now we're at the point where in most instances, when equity markets go down, so do the publicly traded REITs. They are essentially just another form of an equity investment. And so from our standpoint, we are always trying to avoid correlation to equity markets. We are always trying to protect downside. And that is the main reason why we like being on the private side. Private funds, when they value the assets that they have in them, are valuing them based upon the actual cash flow of a building, the value of a building. It doesn't change on a whim because the Federal Reserve raises interest rates or lowers interest rates, or the market is up or the market is going down. It's similar to your home. 
No one's valuing your home on a day-to-day basis. Yes, if somebody wants to go sell it, you'll get a closer market value. But in general, you're not seeing a tremendous amount of volatility to your own personal balance sheet based upon the stock market going up or down. And that's very similar to the way real estate is. Real estate properties will get marked up and down on a quarterly basis, but it's going to be based upon the cash flow of the property, what's going on on a broader economic scale, not really worrying about whether or not the stock market is up 20% or down 20%. And because we're trying to cut volatility for our clients, and that is the whole purpose of the alternative investments portfolio that we manage for clients, making sure that our real estate is not moving up and down with the market is equally as important as our hedge funds. How do you access these these private funds though? So no differently than our alternative, our, our hedge funds that we've used and we talked about in prior episodes, um, we've developed great relationships with several real estate providers um, where we can go direct. Um, we have access through a lot of platform providers and the funds that they have that we have access to. And so we think that over the years, we've developed good enough relationships where uh, we've got great access. And again, to, to the comment you made before, and we'll talk about it, but whether or not we have real estate that's designed to produce income, whether or not we have real estate that's designed uh, to, for growth or a combination of the two, we have different managers who we will access um, and invest in them on a client-by-client basis, depending upon what the objectives are. Some clients will own both. Some clients may only own growth. Some clients may only own income, um, but we'll have access to all of them. And we continually are allocating money year over year to these strategies for all of our clients. There got to be tax benefits, right? <laughs> Tell me about <laughs> The nice thing about real estate, yes, is there's definitely tax benefits. Um, so when you own a property, there's something called depreciation. And so um, properties get depreciated, which means um, there's sort of like an inherent loss that goes in the um, value of the fund on a year-to-year basis. And portfolios or, or properties that generate income, that income can be offset by the depreciation of the asset. So as you are taking on income from a property on an annual basis, a lot of that income is offset by the depreciation, therefore minimizing the taxable income. Now, like every Thing, you do have to pay taxes at some point in time. But what you're doing with real estate is you're getting what we call tax beneficial income, whereby it's tax deferred. And then you're eventually converting that taxable income to capital gains. So essentially, if you buy a property for a dollar, you depreciate it by 50 cents. When you sell that property, you're going to have a 50 cent capital gain plus whatever maybe that dollar appreciated to. Um, so that income you received, that 50 cents, not to get technical of income, that 50 cents came to you tax-free because depreciation offset that income stream. So you're tanked, as again, you're taking income and it's being converted to capital gains at a later point in time when you sell that property. If you end up never selling that property, you just have a largely depreciated asset. Once you depreciate the entire thing, you'll pay full income on it. But until you do that, all that income came to the investor on a tax-free or technically a tax-deferred basis. And it's one of the reasons why we really like it. Because then when you take a look at where interest rates have been over the last 10 years, being exceptionally low, real estate traditionally generates um, a lot more 
income relative to a corporate bond or a US treasury. And then when you take into the tax beneficial component to it, and you get an even additional benefit that we enjoy. What about rental properties? So what the, the way we structure or, or the way we look at the investment world, as I said, is sort of twofold. Um, we generally try to be a little bit more on the defensive side. Again, for those who've listened to some of our podcasts, you'll get the sense that when it comes to our alternatives, we're traditionally a little bit more on the defensive side. Um, slow and steady is going to win the race. Again, the misnomer of hedge funds being risky, I think we've dispelled that in the past. Um, same kind of concept with real estate. Um, so we take a defensive nature and we generally are looking more for cash flow. Um, and so the rental properties that you mentioned. One of the things we like about it, we look at things like a multifamily housing units, um, our funds where our management are kind of funds where managers are looking at those types of properties. Uh, student housing is an area that we've looked at uh, in the past. It's gotten a little bit pricey over the last couple of years because it's been such a popular place um, for a lot of real estate investors to go on a lot of uh funds to go. But that's one of the things that we're generally looking at from a cash flow standpoint. Um, also, our areas that we've looked at in the past are manufactured housing. We just like things that are very cash flow rich investments whereby there's a need. So like what we don't like when you talk about rental properties is uh, we're not a big fan of the best in class um, office buildings. We're not a big fan of the best-in-class um, apartment rental buildings, because what happens there is there's no one to capture in an economic downturn. If you're renting to the best of the best, yes, they're probably going to be with able to, they're probably going to be able to withstand some form of economic um, decline, whereby they might not lose their home. But look at Class A rental properties for offices. Those are absolutely abysmal right now because over the last couple of years, we've dealt with COVID. Hmm. So if you take a look at what we like, we like more of what we would call workforce housing opportunities, whereby if God forbid the middle blue collar worker was struggling, that generally means a lot of other people might be struggling, unfortunately. And so if those people have to vacate an apartment, you generally have the ability to capture somebody else who might have to come downstream, maybe trying to cut their costs, maybe going from a higher cost rental to a lower cost rental. But if you're at the top of the food chain, you don't have the ability to capture anybody coming downstream. You're simply focused on people being able to go upstream. And so that's why we like this sort of defensive nature of, of income generating real estate and multifamily and workforce housing, because we think that there's a lot of different safety nets in there to make sure that we continually capture the income. And because all properties across the board um, are generally valued based upon cash flow, we want to make sure the cash flow stays consistent and also has the ability to grow. Most, you know, everybody who ever rented a house or rented an apartment um, generally knows that there's, you know, rent increases throughout the life of, of, of owning the property, whether or not it's a year to year increase or, you know, maybe you sign a two year lease and afterwards it increases. And so that's one of the reasons why we like those types of scenarios whereby we have the ability to increase rent helps keep up with inflation, helps increase the value of the property. Because again, like I just said, uh, you have a trend tremendous amount of pricing flexibility as you increase 
your rent rolls. But that brings me back to student housing then too. You've got a, a population that's constantly coming in, kind of like the workforce housing. They may not be coming down market, but they're coming into the market. So you always have that option. And yet you say you try and stay away from that. Simply no, so what, 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 well, listen, at the end of the day, there's supply and demand dynamics in every segment of the real estate world. Okay. Whether or not you're taking a look at industrial space, and we can talk about that, whether or not you're taking a look at multifamily, whether or not you're taking a look at somebody buying land to put more residential homes on a property, or in this case, we're talking about student housing. Student housing, because of exactly what you're saying, most universities have a shortage of housing. And so what's occurred of some of these larger universities is these companies have built buildings or taken over old buildings and converted them into private student housing. And they rent them for a hefty penny. Mm -hmm. Um, And so trust me, I have a sophomore at the University of Wisconsin. I can tell you all about it, as can a lot of our friends. So, But the moral of the story is, is because it was such an obvious play and an obvious investment theme, um, it just got crowded. And so when things get crowded, things get pricey. And all of a sudden, you start looking at properties or our managers start looking at properties. And what they were able to purchase you know, at X is now mm-hmm. X times Y. And all of a sudden, you're paying substantially more for a property. The income that you can really generate, it might not fully support the price that people are looking for. And you're sort of having to make assumptions that, okay, if I hold the property for a certain amount of time, I'll be able to increase the rent. I can keep increasing it. But at some point in time, there's what we all call an economics price elasticity. And how much is somebody willing to pay for a one-bedroom apartment or a room in a four-bedroom apartment? And so our managers had looked at these properties and said, hey, you know what? Everything's just getting a little bit pricey. Um, and so we're going to step away and we're going to look at other opportunities um, in other parts of the country. Remember, student housing isn't something that is, or private student housing isn't something that is a nationwide opportunity. It's generally on larger college campuses um, where you've seen you know, substantial population growth in the student body and the schools just have not kept up with the dorms. And so there is this need. But again, it's not something that you look at in every city and every campus where it's completely prevalent. And then the reality of that also is, is you have to be able to either A, build a building, and that's not cheap anymore, as we've seen with inflation costs over the years, cost more and more to build a, build a building. Then you have to make sure that whether it be the town or the student body can then support the rental payments required to cover the costs and make money in the property that you are looking to build. And so it's not as simple as, yeah, it seems like a shortage. It must must be a good place to invest. You really have to take a look at it and say, okay, well, what are the population dynamics? What are the economic dynamics? You know, can can the student body that's coming in support the rent required? Um, and what parents. they kind of yeah. And or what, their parents. Well, specifically their parents. And then, and, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the managers that we looked at and had invested in it got to the point where they kind of got in early and things that they were buying, they're seeing, you know, they're sellers rather than being buyers. And we respect that. And that's one of the things we like about our managers. And that's one of the things we like about real estate. Real estate for us is not a buy and hold in perpetuity. 
there's opportunities to buy, there's opportunities to sell, and you take advantage of them. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we think we've had very good relationships uh, with the funds that we've invested in. And, and knock on wood, we've had some very uh, strong returns. And this brings us right back to growth versus income. And mm -hmm. or you may want both of them, as you say. Tell me about the difference between the two and what are the goals and objectives of each? So I'd say somebody who's investing in real estate for growth is probably looking for a higher return than somebody who's looking primarily for income. And I'll give you a great example. So somebody who is looking primarily for income, um, there's a space in real estate called the triple net lease. And essentially what it is, is you've got a single tenant Many times it could be a corporate headquarters, it could be a research center for a company, a uh, very integral part of the success of that company. Company X may not want to own those buildings. They may prefer to rent them for business purposes. They may not want to have tens of millions of dollars tied up in a piece of property. They might rather invest it into their business. And so what they do is maybe they previously own the building, They'll sell it to a real estate company, or maybe the real estate company will, will build the building knowing that they're going to sign a long-term lease. And these leases are generally 10 to 20 years. And every um, year, there's a little bit of an increase in the payment of the interest, uh, of the lease payment. These leases, as I said, 10 to 20 years, you are now a creditor of the company. And as long as you do your credit work well, very few defaults in the triple net lease space. And then on top of it, God forbid uh, you did have a tenant default, you still actually have the fallback of owning that property that you could sell or rent to somebody else if you wanted to. There's not a tremendous amount of risk in that segment. And so right now, you generally see initial incomes in the maybe seven to 8% range. Okay. Again, keeping in mind where interest rates are, that's tax beneficial income, still far superior uh, yeah. to what you can get in the bond market. Um, and then because of increases in, in the lease rates, um, what happens is, is that the, the cash flow that you continually get from this property increases. And therefore, when you opt to sell it, five, seven, eight years down the line. And our, our providers generally look to sell them with a long-term lease still in place because that creates the most value for somebody who's looking to purchase it. Um, that's strictly just a plain vanilla income. Maybe you get another 2 or 3% return annually on the price of a property. And you net out at a 10 or a 12% return, maybe a little bit more in better times, maybe a little bit less in really bad times. But again, um, very steady, very consistent, stable, not a tremendous amount of risk. Okay. Um, otherwise, you can take a look at a more growth-oriented type of investment whereby someone's generally looking to develop something whether it be a shopping center and they have a piece of land and they're going to develop it. Uh, maybe they have to go into a, initially building a, an apartment building. Okay. And so there's tremendous amount of risk. There's tremendous amount of capital commitment to that. They buy a build, they buy a land, they build the building. Um, and then maybe what they'll do is they'll, what we call stabilize that building. They'll be able to get renters in there. And once they get renters in there, they'll generally turn around and sell that property. Those returns are going to be substantially higher. And why are they going to be higher? Is because you're taking something from scratch that never existed, hoping that you can 
build on the land, hoping you can rent the property to some level, whether it be for retail, office, or you know, a multifamily purpose. And so you're taking on tremendous amounts of risk. There's a lot of things that can go wrong from start to finish there. And that's more of a growth component. Those investors are, are rarely getting cash flow along the way. And so because they're not getting cash and they're taking more risk, the returns that you would expect in those types of investments should be dramatically higher when it works. And so that's your growth component to it. And again, depending upon how big of an apple you're trying to bite and how big of a swing you're trying to take, your return expectations could be you know, dramatically bigger than an income play, um, or they could potentially be you know, a little bit bigger. But it all depends upon the risk and the investment and also how long a project takes. All right. Steve, that's, that's fantastic. It's a great real estate uh, primer in a nutshell there. I love it. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you think we should? Um, I, look, I, I think the key is really understanding how to place real estate alongside hedge funds, um, alongside, and we'll get to it in future podcasts, private equity, and how you also manage that within your liquid investments. Because it's important to remember, real estate is very illiquid. Mm -hmm. And most investors shy away from certain things that are illiquid. We run to illiquid investments because we think at the end of the day, illiquidity is, is your friend. It prevents you from making emotional decisions in times of stress. It forces you to hold on to assets. And we think from a real estate standpoint, the longer you can hold on to a property, generally speaking, the more opportunity you have for success. You can ride out the bumps. But we really love real estate for what it generally offers, which is a lot of cash flow. And that's why I say we're looking at things mostly on the defensive side, um, although we do have plenty of investments and funds that we purchase that are for the growth side. When we do that, I will also say um, we have a tendency to be a little bit more on, on the conservative nature. We're not taking big swings. Uh, big swings have big misses, uh, and we're not really interested in big misses. We're very happy with our you know, doubles. Um, you, get hit, <laughs> you get a couple of triples in there occasionally, and maybe you get a home run. But you know, if you're a doubles hitter, it's it's fantastic. It's a, you, you hit them right up the middle. Um, you collect your cash flow. You get a good rate of return. Um, but again, it, the the illiquidity is very important for investors to understand uh, because if you own real estate in a liquid format, you leave yourself or the manager open to the susceptibility of having to sell at an inopportune time. You want your managers to be able to control when they want to sell, provided you trust them. And we do. We trust our managers very, very well. Um, but if you are in a fund that anybody can come in and out at a whim and they all decide to run for the exits, the manager is going to be a forced seller. And any single time your manager is a forced seller, rarely are you getting the best price for that asset. And so- you want to make sure, my recommendation to anybody out there who's listening, which is you want to make sure your illiquid investments are structured to be illiquid. Once you take something that's supposed to be illiquid and you make it liquid, you completely change the dynamic of how it can be invested. You completely change the risk characteristics and you completely change what the likely uh, performance outcome is going to be, particularly in times of stress. That makes total sense. 
total mm-hmm. sense. Emotions just jump in there and people freak. Correct. And I think on later podcasts, we'll get into some more of the nuances of some of the different segments, um, such as, as I mentioned, triple net leasing, multifamily, um, you know, some of the growth investments that we've looked at in the past. And we can dive a little bit deeper into what each of the individual segments are like and, and where you can find value, um, what the pros and cons are of each of the different segments. And then investors can and listeners can decide how they want to you know, do things on their own. Or call us. I was going to say, for people who don't want to wait for that podcast, how can people reach us, Stephen? Uh, as always, they can reach us at HightowerBethesda.com. I always welcome everybody to listen to the different podcasts that we have up there, read our blogs, read our quarterly newsletters. Uh, you can always reach out to us via email or call us. Our website's always the easiest place to find us. And of course, follow or share this podcast Those you share it with will appreciate it, I'm very sure. And when you follow it, you will know when the new one is ready for you. I'm Patrice Sikora, and thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Approach Investing Differently. Don't forget to follow the podcast to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hightower Bethesda is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.